Welcome to Temporary Fandoms episode 18, or perhaps more importantly, The Four, part four. That means we're halfway through this towering folly, and if you're just joining us, please go back to episode 15 where we kick things off with our journey through the discography of The Fall. If you've been listening all the way along, congratulations on making it this far. We've got loads of good stuff still to come. It's been a real pleasure watching this series take off on social media and getting interactions from past members of The Fall, including both Hanley brothers, Six Music's Mark Riley, and keyboardist Eleni Pulu. As a result, We've been creeping up the podcast charts, at least in our rather niche category of music history. If you're enjoying the show, please do share it with your friends, leave us a review, or even buy us a coffee. It all helps. You can find us on Beat Rehab at beat.rehab slash tempfans or on our website at tempfans.com. Look out for the Spotify links to the playlist edition that cuts the album intros together with the actual music. It's really the best way to listen. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and of course, in the place where it all started, which is on Facebook, at facebook.com slash groups slash fans. Let's get on with things, shall we? We all know why we're here, so let's carry on listening to the complete discography of The Fall. Hello there, welcome to episode 18 of Temporary Fandoms. Um... I know there's a bit of a joke how I keep forgetting and I started remembering recently, but we're recording a lot of these fall episodes back to back. And so I am slightly lost in everything at the moment. Um, my name's Ewan. I'm Nick. And we are, we're powering into the, well, we'll I'll tell you a bit, but spoiler, late nineties of the fall uh, for good or bad. Um, Nick, what are you covering today? So I'll be introducing Cerebral Caustic from 1995 and 1996's The Light User Syndrome. Perfect. I'm welcoming back. We've got Joe Mitchell, who, who didn't introduce anything last time, but he is going to make up with that, for that with a plum. Joe, hey. Hey, that's right. I'm going to be looking at three records. I've got um, Levitate from 1997. I've got The Marshall Suite. And we're tipping over into the 21st century and also looking at The Unutterable. Perfect. Thank you very much. And obviously rejoining us is Zoe Van Hess. Zoe? Hi. Slightly tipsy now. Yay! Stormzy, (laughs) Stormzy, Stormzy. (laughs) No, mega shamer. I don't want to talk about that. Let's move on. Well, I do. I do. It's it's, it's one of the highlights (laughs) in the history of the pod. Um. As I call back to previous episodes, obviously we are, this is not the first episode of of the fall. Wherever you found this, if this is your first one, Stop, go back, uh, go and listen to our first few episodes on The Fall, listen to our episodes on Can, Yola Tengo, David Bowie, Butthole Surfers, The Pogues, Queens of the Stone Age, Spoon, and I would say ESG, but don't listen to that quite yet, and you'll find out at some point in the future. Um, find us on Spotify, find the Spotify profile, listen to the playlist, tell your friends, leave a review, uh, stop us, go and listen to your full collection. On, or go on Spotify or YouTube or wherever it is music is these days. TikTok. I imagine there's a full TikTok somewhere. That's what the world seems to be doing. Anyway, I I'm rambling. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so, um, we're, I'm going to hand you back over to Nick's capable hands. Um, and the next voice you hear will be him talking about cerebral caustic after this. It sounds like the fucking chairman, said Marky e. Smith of Dave Bush's program Rhythms for the new songs on 1995 Cerebral Caustic. 
Turn that fucking thing off, will you? And with that, he was gone from the band. Now I'm going to hazard a guess that those of you who didn't know this particular plot twist already definitely didn't see it coming. In 1995, Brixie Smith rejoined the fall. Does that mean a resurgence of what's considered the Brixie era sound? Not exactly, no. Although you can hear her trying. At the heart of Cerebral Caustic are a cluster of songs bearing the stamp of Brixie's popular leanings. So much so that there's a case to be made that had things been different, it could have regained the ground lost by middle-class revolt in the fall's popularity stakes. However, Marky e. Smith seemed determined for that not to happen. This is most painfully apparent on the absurdly titled Bonkers in Phoenix. In the background, one can discern Bricks plaintively singing the chorus to a song we will never properly hear, thanks to a barrage of noise that has been layered over the top of it, together with Marky e. Smith barking random things about Glastonbury and the short-lived Phoenix Festival over the top. He successfully renders what may have been a sweet pop song totally unlistenable. Early on the album, Don't Call Me Darling leaves us in no doubt to where things stand between the divorcees, with Bricks screaming the song's title with evident fury. Towards the end of the album is the spirited One Day, with its chorus of And one day you'll wake up and find you lost a good man. The result is that it feels like a bitter album, in which several sweet songs are buried. Hanley and Bricks tell contradictory stories about the genesis of feeling numb in their biographies, with Hanley saying it was a combination of ideas from him and Dave Bush, whereas Bricks claims it was her own. Of course, it's possible that all three of them deserve the credit. Sadly, its title betrays how the band are really feeling at this point. It charted lower than Middle Class Revolt, and it's safe to say that Bricks' return was not about to usher in a new era of poppier, more accessible fall songs. The atmosphere in the band was toxic, and we're on the brink of another major casualty. With 1996's The Light User Syndrome, it's bye-bye long-serving guitarist Craig Scanlon. Steve Hanley's version of events is that Smith sacked the whole band and told them they'd have to ask for their jobs back if they wanted to continue to play with the fall. Respect then to Scanlon for refusing, but mostly this story makes me cringe for poor Steve, who really couldn't see any alternative to being in the band. As I mentioned on Cerebral Caustic, Dave Bush is gone too, and with him, the electronic inflections that permeated the early 90s fall sound. In his place is Julian Nagel, former member of St. Winifred's School Choir. Grandma, we love you! So what are we left with? With Hanley humiliated, Brix's contributions savaged, and Scanlon gone, shouldn't this be another instalment in the diminishing returns we've experienced since 94's middle-class revolt? By all accounts, including his own, Marky Smith was drinking extremely heavily during this period, and he didn't spend a great deal of time in the studio. In her autobiography, The Rise, The Fall and The Rise, Bricks claims that he did most of his vocal parts on the final night of recording. Nevertheless, the band seemed somewhat reinvigorated, and provided Smith with some meaty jams over which to bellow drunkenly about whatever was eating away at him in 1996. Things pick up on track 3, Hey Pep, one of Smith's several odes to amphetamines, and along with Spine Track, one of the last times we'll hear that great interplay between Mark and Bricks. In contrast to Cerebral Caustic, and despite things being no less unpleasant between them, this facet of the music really seems to work on light user syndrome. Bricks shines on chillinism with its bizarre refrain of dry hump in the hip club. 
Carl Burns singing vocals on Johnny Paycheck's Stay Away All White Train, however, will remind fans who've seen the full live of those moments when Smith stalks off stage, leaving the band to fill the gap. And unfortunately, a lot of the album feels like this. It becomes dense with chugging riffs, at times powerfully so, but the increasingly incoherent frontman leaves the majority of the album to churn along without him. The album plays out to the frankly bizarre Secession Man, and it's hard not to imagine those graceless keyboard stabs would have been better handled by Dave Bush. But where else are you going to hear what sounds like, but maybe isn't, a vibraphone in the Falls discography? And even as I say that, I know someone's going to get in touch to tell me. An incredibly shambolic tour followed, during which Bricks appears to have remembered what working with Mark was really like, especially with her influence over the band's sound so diminished. And in many ways, it felt like the Falls light might be dimming. I'll hand you over to Joe Mitchell to explore what happened next. I'm here to pick up the Falls history in 1997. Picture the scene. Tony Blair's pretending to play the electric guitar. Elton John's in the corner playing Candle in the Wind with his chubby fingers in tribute to the Princess of Our Hearts. And Levitate, the 19th studio album by The Fall, is released into the world to mixed reviews and indifference. Levitate could be seen very loosely as a sequel of sorts to 1990's Extricate, because both records were released after the departure of Bricksmith from The Fold. Both are my favourite 90s Fall albums. Levitate is also significant in the band's discography in that it is the last album in the Fall catalogue to feature drummer Carl Burns, who passed in and out of the band's rank too many times for me to count. Crucially though, it would also prove to be the last from Steve Hanley, whose bass playing was once described by Marky e. Smith as the defining element of the group's music. Smith soon changed his tune once Hanley had abandoned him, shrugging off 19 years of service with the remark, we'll just get ourselves another bass player, and more famously, if it's me and your granny on the bongos, it's the fall. Levitate pretty much adheres to that tried and tested fall routine of mixing ramshackle covers, bizarre sound experiments and decent tunes, but it works very well. Smith's decline from verbose poet to piss artist, which had been picked up by many critics in the 90s, initially seemed tragic, but I personally have a good deal of respect for the fact that Mark simply kept on giving us the goods. Indeed, Ten Houses of Eve, the opening track from Levitate, introduces a Mark who has never before sounded so fucked off his face. Zoe Von Hess on the temporary fandoms group said it best when she stated that he sounds like Uncle Peter from Vic and Bob on many of Levitate's tracks. He definitely does, but nevertheless succeeds. There are enough head-turning sounds on Eve to make it a strong opener to Levitate, with its beats and mid-tuned synth melody providing a welcome change of pace from the racket. From here on, you have the single from the album Masquerade, or Masquerade, as Mark would sing. This was Rush released in February 1998 to coincide with Mark winning that year's Enemy Godlike Genius Award, after claiming that the award should really go to Enemy readers for reading the magazine cover to cover. Masquerade is brilliant, dark, murky and messy, fully deserving its place on the Essential Fall collection. 50,000 Fall fans can't be wrong. I'm a Mummy's a whole lot of fun. It's the first of three covers included here. Sadly, the same cannot be said about an absolutely indefensibly shit cover of Hank Mazel's Jungle Rock, which pales in comparison to the original and brings down the tone on what is otherwise a very good album. Last of all on the covers front, 
is a come and stand at your door, popularised by the birds as a come and stand at every door, detailing the ghostly wanderings upon the earth of a seven-year-old boy who was killed in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. It somewhat cheapens the macabre subject detail of a dead child when Marky Smith names the instrumental prelude to the number earlier in the album as Jack Kid, but it's still an effective number. Central to Levitate, though, are three favourite tracks of mine from the album. The quartet of Doc Shanley, Four and a Half Inch and Spencer Must Die, which were the first pieces of music recorded for the album when it was intended to have been produced by Keir Stewart and Simon Spencer, a partnership doomed to fail. The Fall received a VAT bill from the Inland Revenue, which amounted to nearly £200,000 at the start of the sessions, and so arguments concerning payments led to the departure of both Stewart and Spencer but also funky Simon Wollstonecraft. The quartet of Doc Shanley is brilliant though. Julian Agle serves as a sort of prototype for Eleni Palou with a programming and vocals. Of course, this is interspersed with Mark enthusing about a new series on TV from the creator of his favourite X-Files. And best of all for me is Four and a Half Inch, the name deriving from Marky's opinion that the tune sounds like a poor man's nine inch nails. Really, it is anything but. The Marshall Suite, the fall's 20th album, came in October 1999, and it mainly built itself on the techno-influenced beats introduced with Levitate. It is a strong album, and it is clear, even through a cursory listen, that although Marquis Smith had pretty much shed his band following his arrest in New York in April 1998, he had something to prove to those who may have doubted his ability to deliver a decent record and maintain the fall as a going concern. On the face of things, the Marshall Suite is a continuation of the sound produced by the ongoing presence of Julian Agle, but nevertheless is unique as each fall album manages to be. As John Peel would have it, always the same, always different. Given that a little bit more time and effort was put into the making of this LP, there is more to it than initially meets the eye. To begin with, the Marshall Suite started life out as a planned concept album, loosely based around the character of the crying Marshall who makes a number of appearances in Mark's lyrics across the record. In reality, Mark's division never really panned out. What we were eventually left with was a record in three parts and three sides of vinyl. These could roughly be put into three categories. The first conventional side, the second sees the fall becoming slightly unhinged, while the third and final section is the full-on wazzy side, as some members of temporary fandoms would have it. The Marshall Suite does kick off with an instant fall classic, Touch Sensitive, which despite some comedy lyrics from Mark, is nevertheless one of the truly great fall singles, and opens the proceedings with a cracking riff. It should be familiar of course, even to those who have no real knowledge of the fall, through its use in a Vauxhall Corsa advert some years back. At the time I needed the money, said Smith of its use, we're not all Elton John. Touch Sensitive would also, rather humorously, be at the centre of a court case over writing and royalty credits a few years back. A case that was thrown out of court because the judge couldn't work out or understand any of the words that Marquis was singing. On we go then to A Bold in Money, the fall superior cover of the Tommy Blake Rockabilly original. Every fall fan has their own personal favourite cover from the band. This one is mine. It's just brilliant. Rollicking good fun, 
Mark not giving an absolute fuck. Same goes for Shake Off, which is classic 90s fall. The band's back on serious form. This Perfect Day is an excellent reworking of the classic single from the wonderful and criminally underrated Australian band, The Saints, who performed the single on Top of the Pops back in 1977. Young Nev's Anecdotes is another highlight of the record, despite it sounding uncommonly like Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. The Young Nev here being a reference to Neville Wilding, the new guitarist of the fall. The Marshall Suite saw the group shed a drummer before they even began recording, and the record contains two different bassists. Then, everything just goes a bit bizarre, although not in the way in which one might expect. Birthday Song is all Julia Nagel. It was initially written as an instrumental for a sister's birthday. Mark always liked it, and so Nagel asked him to write a love poem to accompany the music, and this was the result. Marky e. Smith writing a conventional love song sounds unlikely and extreme, Although if I've learned anything about the fall, it's that they've tried absolutely everything at least once, and one should never underestimate Smith and his ability to consistently surprise you. Some of his lyrics on here though. My darling, there is another side you'd never see. Trying to, like you, navigate without pains and in dreams. I stumble towards you, knees knocked as you evaporate. We would never see this side to Mark again. Just the same as Levitate, the Marshall Suite ends on something of an intriguing patchwork-like tone. Mad Men, in Dog, contains a snippet of a tape recording from an episode of The Prisoner, and On Your Own is a simple reworking of Everybody But Myself, the closing track from Levitate. And with that, the fall say goodbye to the 20th century, intact as a unit, with no further lineup changes, ready to make one more record as a cohesive group before Mark would replace everyone once again. The Unutterable sees Mark E. Smith return with a newfound confidence. For the first time since Ben Sinister in 1986, there are no cover versions to be found on this record, and we've been generously gifted with a full 15 tracks, the vast majority of which are excellent. Smith sounds comfortable in his own skin on this LP, after the success of the Marshall Suite, and that's evident in his choice of subject matter, Many of the tracks on The Unutterable are either occupied with the unearthly fantasies of H.P. Lovecraft, one of Marquis' main influences, but with a decent slab of drug references and rockabilly tunes thrown in there for good measure. In fact, The Unutterable as a title comes from Lovecraft and was lifted from the lines, I stand here and saw before me The Unutterable, the unthinkable gulf that yawns profound between two worlds in the world of spirits. Science fiction takes centre stage in the very first track which kickstarts the album, the excellent Cyber Insect, which was inspired by an Ian Banks paperback, The State of the Art, on sale at a train station. It could well be that there was a valid reason as to why Mark sounded more assured on The Unutterable, and this can be found on the album's Ketamine Sun, with the lines, I'm a goddamn fool. According to Julian Nagel, this line is a reference to a love letter Mark had in his possession from Eleni Palou, whom he'd recently met, and who would soon become his third wife and a key player in the fall's final phase. It's hard not to think of Jack Smith's words of wisdom to his son as detailed in Renegade. If you're ever feeling too sexy, just have a glass of water and a run around the backyard. Marky does seem to be in an unusually playful mood on the Unutterable at times though. At one point, the whole of the band act out as characters in a sitcom called The Kettisons. Mark sings in a Southern American accent later on, before losing his mind completely in the second half 
and delivering the lounge jazz style pumpkin soup and mashed potatoes. It may be wholesome fair pumpkin soup, but it's balanced out later by numerous references to doctors and drugs on the album. Ketamine, hyacinth, post seizures and Mark's Dr. Book. Highlights on The Unutterable for me include the brilliant two Librans. The two in question apparently being Nico and Jackson Brown. Not bad company to find oneself in as a fellow Libran. Also, I really love Way Around, which seemingly tells the tale of Marquis lost in a disco and dealing with a situation he's been dealt with as though it was an episode of The Crystal Maze. Hands Up Billy is also very good, a writing contribution from guitarist Young Nev. The song has a boxing theme, which is a possible explanation for the cover of the album with its image of two boxers sparring. We also learn a list of five things without which Marquis, or Pete Tong, it's not exactly clear, cannot leave the house without. In case you're wondering, that's a pair of sunglasses, music, an Amex card, mobile phone and a Prime Pilot. And although I said that The Unutterable breaks from tradition by not having a cover version on it, unlike each fall release from the 1990s, well, that's not strictly true. Ketamine Sun is pretty much a rip-off of Kill Your Sons by Lou Reed. Definitely not a bad thing. WB, meanwhile, is a decent tribute to the English poet, painter and engraver William Blake, with words lifted straight from his Song of Liberty. Das Caterer also sees the fall cover themselves by using Free Range as its backing track. The title likely refers to Marquis's role as a caterer in a short film by Mark Ariel Waller, which was named Midwatch, another title lent to an unutterable track. I really love this one, it's wonderful and frightening indeed. All of which add up to a very good and a very generous mix of high standard fall tracks. And although it may not be a career peak, The Unutterable is an excellent record on a whole. There's enough here to keep any fall fan occupied. Once again, Marquis' triumph lies within his uncanny ability to coax original performances from his band. The only problem was, this was the end of the road for this particular configuration of the fall. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. Um, you have been listening to more of The Fall as we uh, dissect their complete discography in eight-minute chunks, which is probably what Mark e. Smith would have loved. Um, still with Nick and myself, uh, Zoe Van Hess. Zoe, hello. Hi. And Joe Mitchell. Hey, Joe. Hi there. Okay, so let's crack on. We are moving into... What, are we on 95 yet, yes, Nick? 95, yep. And um, Cerebral Caustic. Yes, um, yeah. Tell us, what, what's going on? <laughs> well, I mean, the big surprise with this album is that this is the album where Bricks rejoined the band, which is just nuts. Um, and the, the bit in Steve Hanley's biography where he describes that is just, it's just brilliant. You know, it's basically like Mark calls him up and says, here, come over to my house, I've got a surprise. And they all go over <laughs> and there's Bricks sitting in his living room saying, hi, I'm joining the band again. Like, it's just insane. You know, they've just recorded a diss album about her, and she's in the band again. Um, and she claims that she'd had uh, counter-offers from Hole and the Bangles, which I take with a pinch of salt. But, you know, maybe it's true. Um, Hole, Hole and the Bangles. And the Bangles. Which actually is kind of, you know, that's Bricks, right? Hole okay. and the Bangles. I, I, she's somewhere in the I, middle. Yeah, right that's now, true. I have this, right now, I have this, this idea in my head of... Of Susanna Hoff playing, replacing Courtney Love in Hole, and, and how you've got amazing. Bricks, right? That, brilliant. Perfect. Part Susanna Hoff, part Courtney Love. 
I've done that now. When I mentioned, when I brought this album up um, uh, on the video call that we've got, everybody basically pulled a, oh my God, it's this album face. So I'm guessing it's not necessarily everybody's favorite. Is that I, fair to say? favorite fall album. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that doesn't surprise me, but I, I like it, but I didn't like it at the time. When it came out, it was probably the first time where I was like, because also I think in context, I was probably also digging more and more back into the history of the fall, you know, and gradually realizing it's like, yeah, okay, this 90s fall stuff's okay, but wow, this nation's saving grace. Live at the Witch Trials, those are amazing records. So it probably made it harder for me to accept new fall albums, and they took more time. But there are some difficult tracks on this one for sure. It's a toss-up uh, between um, this and probably the next one, like User Syndrome, but I have to say... It's got the Ooh. worst fall album cover. Contender, I guess. I don't know. It's pretty. Was it right that Brick said that the um, the skull on the front was actually yeah. Mark? In the, it, Mark looked like a skull, but he was also a clown. <laughs> with a clown maybe, nose. maybe. I, there are many websites that list albums, uh, falls albums ranked. Um, has there been a fall album covers listicle probably, sitting anywhere? Probably. If not, that is social media gold. I mean, they've had a lot of shit album covers. Album (laughs) covers were not their strong point, for sure. I mean, I think... Are You Are Missing Winner, actually? That's probably the worst. I don't know. I I think some later ones that have worse album covers. But anyway, that's... uh... Um, My notes notes for this was, well, basically, this album, uh, because uh, I... The, the entire full discography was new to me, and so I've been listening to everything um, chronologically as we go through the various episodes. And I listened to the last two albums and this album back to back. And by the time I got to this, I wasn't sure whether or not it was because I'd been listening to nonstop fall, or because this one was a bit pants. I mean, my notes were, um, yeah, it was, um, yeah. I mean, Bricks is back, but um, yeah. I'm not, I wasn't sure whether or not it was me, but judging by everyone else's reaction, perfect. I mean, I was starting to really like The Fall, despite my initial reticence. Um, that has been well covered in various previous episodes of the podcast, to the point that I thought that the repetition, repetition, repetition had brainwashed me like some form of Mancunian candidate into liking The Fall. But this album was a bit shit. Nah. I don't think you can write it off completely, though, because actually the second half gets really good again. There's some great tracks. Two two tracks that people struggle with, I think. There's one track I like. Don't call me darling. Don't call me darling. That's the one you liked. That's the one I like. I'm not keen on that one. That's one I don't like. It's a. I, I wrote down broody, menacing, jaunty. Wow. It's um. It's just. It's, it just sums up the tension, really, between uh, Marky e. Smith and Bricks in the band at that point. It just, and it just feels unpleasant, I think. That's why uh, I like it. If you're going to have an album fair enough. where and you criticise yeah. your ex, and then your ex comes back, and track two starts with your ex going, don't call me darling. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a welcome back, here's your right of reply, right? I, I normally like that drama in a record, but I don't think they were in a good place at all to fall at this point. I think they only played about 15 times that year in 1995, and that's not like the fall at all. Yeah, yeah. But I think the other track that makes it difficult for people to like is Bonkers in Phoenix. Oh, that I love that one. No, I really like that. You do? You see, I've heard people say that. I've heard really Stuart Lee it. say it's his favourite fall song. Bloody oh, that's Stuart Lee being <laughs> Stuart Lee, right? Yeah, but and the thing is, inside that song, you can hear Brick singing another song. that It's just being smothered by what Marky e. Smith is doing. And... That, again, it sums it up. He's just he's, he's brought her back into the band, and she's quite clearly sort of trying to 
bring in her influence again. And he's like, no, I'm not having that. And he's just smothered it completely. It's is this, quite, but it, but is this back to the idea of Marky Smith as a really petty individual? Oh, yes. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. So totally self-sabotages on this album. Thinking about it, is this the point where there's more Fall members in the band than there's ever been? Is there seven of them here? I mean, you've got Mark Briggs, Scanlon, Hanley. You've got the two, two drummers because Carl's in yeah. the band. And you've still got yeah. Dave Bush. You've still got Just... Dave Bush on this one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Dave Bush is still in, yeah. Yeah. Three drummers, two guitarists, bassist, Marky e. Smith. What's the worst yeah. that can happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I've got nothing else to say. This, for me, this album was sort of... This was the period of late 90s that things started to sound very similar to each other, and I was waiting for an album to change that. Um, I I'd enjoy, I'd surprisingly enjoyed the stuff coming up to this, and this was caustic, to say the least. Um, I mean, if it's not their worst, this is what I am. This is what I imagined the fall sounded like when I didn't know the fall. Yeah, no, fair enough. And the, the, the title Cerebral Caustic <laughs> comes from a review of Middle Class Revolt. Someone described it as cerebral and caustic. And Marky e. Smith took that as a title for his next album. Oh, is this like if uh, Spinal Tap has released an album called Shit Sandwich? Shit Sandwich, yeah. Maybe. Um, okay, well, we're going to move on then. Um, unless anyone's got anything else to say. Um, the, well, the actually, we're, we're... pretty good. Go on. Sorry, the, the Zappa cover is pretty good. Oh, I'm not satisfied, yeah. Yeah, it's all right. I, I, I think most of the album's actually pretty good. It's just got some tracks that make it hard to love. It's still probably the weakest of the 90s thus far, though, right? Thus far... Yep. Yes, if you haven't got shift work haters in the room. I'm, I like yeah, shift work. Um, okay, so we're moving on from Cerebral Caustic. That was, what, 95? What's next? Uh, the Light User Syndrome, which a lot of people hailed as a return to form. A lot of people really liked it. They kind of ditched a lot of the electronic sounds of the early 90s on this one. In fact, had yeah, Dave Bush has gone, so I guess that's why. But um, yeah, they were so, kind of gone. So 96, 96 in UK music terms was sort of almost like the cheesy Britpop. peak of Britpop, mm. uh, Euro 96, uh, football's coming home, uh, all of this sort of stuff. Lots of guitar bands, Oasis were on, a bit, were still up, were on the rise and sort of everything was sort of peaking at that point. I mean, I think we're a year away from peak Oasis blur bullshit rivalry crap and Oasis doing Nebworth, but this was the music scene. And uh, we've got uh, a band that have ditched their electronic aspect and are going back to a sort of more guitar-y driven. Is, do you think that yeah. was, again, a reflection of what was happening around? Nah. Despite think, Marky's... Honestly, I think from this point onwards, the fall don't make any effort whatsoever to fit in with what anyone else is doing. Probably the last time you heard that was when they were kind of sounded a bit like a Manchester band. But from here on in, they were doing their own thing. We have got a precog moment on this record, though, where Mark sings Powder Keg. 1996 was the year where we had the IRA bomb in Manchester. Yeah. It's one of those, like, Victoria train station massacre where Mark sings about something before it actually happens. Yeah, I think I think it's... I mean, it's bullshit, though, isn't it? I it mean, is. It's kind <laughs> it of... <is> <laughs> he, he, liked, he liked to play up to that. Oh, think, yeah. You know, because yeah. the, story, the story is that he was actually being... He was being phoned up by tabloids asking him about it because he you know it was rumored that he'd written songs that were anticipating things that were going to happen i think the other one was terry wait says what, really what, what like yes. he was some form of it's nostradamus thing, there, are, there are people who claim marky e. smith is psychic yeah. i think brixie smith yeah. is among them um it's nonsense but when you nonsense. Sing about- and if anyone, if anyone wants to argue with with this podcast uh, you can have your right to reply <laughs> you're full of shit 
when, when you sing about everything, you're bound to exactly, like, exactly. Uh, I like to think on the on the on the on the science versus psychic um, divide. I yeah. guess this podcast, just to be quite clear, is science. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> um, but the okay. thing is, you know, if you're if, mm-hmm. if you're Marky Smith and people are thought of like treating you like you might be psychic, you're going to play up to it. I would. Um, or, to be honest, ever since we finished the last episode, I've just had an image in my head as a you know was walking around the house of Marky Smith just watching the chase and just shouting chaser and writing a song about it. I can't even imagine him being some form of psychic Nostradamus when he just sings about what he watches on the telly. They're pretty, they're pretty tenuous connections, though. It's not like he explicitly described actual events. So the other one was like when he did the song Terry Waite says on Ben Sinister, just and shortly afterwards, name. exactly shortly after Terry Waite was taken hostage. It's not really an episode of, you know, pre-cult. <laughs> um, would, did, was this album well-received? I think among fans, it was. I get the impression a lot of fans, I think, as I said, it, it was treated as a sort of return to form. Uh, it was a heavier sound, uh, more of a sort of guitar band kind of sound. We don't have Craig Scanlon anymore. That's quite a big and important thing because Craig Scanlon's been in the band since Dragnet um, and he's gone, fired. Um, Why? Was, was it, did he have a relationship with someone? The story, no, the story I, I heard is he, he was kind of generally losing the will to live a bit. He was kind of just fed up. And I think other people noticed it. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's not surprising, really, that anyone who'd been in the fall that long might be getting a bit fed up by now. I think um, this is the point, isn't it, where Mark's drinking got really out of hand. Yeah, I think so. Late, mid, I think mid to late 90s, I think, reaching ahead around about 1998, it probably didn't help that he had his ex-wife in his band. Yeah, that's not yeah, as you um, would. I I also still can't work out why Bricks was back in. It's not. It doesn't seem to be a pure musical decision. It didn't seem to be a sort of uh, let's let's make up and be friends. It seemed to be come back so that I can break you down again. It's. It felt like. I mean, I think she wanted to be back in the band. If you read her version of it, she realized that she really liked being in the fall the first time around, and she missed something about that, and she wanted to be back in. And, and the, um, the I think she quickly regretted it. The fall was successful with Bricks as well, so why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. It. Um, it, does, it does talk back to slightly the cult aspect of I, I need to get back in despite the it's like almost like an almost and i'm not even just talking about the the female members of the band it seems to be in a, a genuinely an abusive relationship with various members of the band throughout yeah, totally, who, totally. who can't escape but mark only unplugs my guitar because he loves me sort of crap she pretty much stayed in la though didn't she she she'd fly over she'd fly over yeah just to record and and do the odd gig and they rarely played at this point which i mean when i first started seeing the fall in the early 2000s they were always playing. You'd see them every three months. Like some form of house band. They were everywhere. Um, Any shit all in the Northwest, they'd, they'd turn up. You know, it's great. It's a good time to be a Fall fan. But I, I do love when there are sort of bands who just, in the local area, it's impossible not to see them. Um, I mean, it was impossible for me not to see Ned's Atomic Dustbin when I was growing up, all the Wonder stuff. Um, I'm sure they were playing the local, I know, cricket hall, sports hall, football pitch at some point. I think I saw Ocean Colour Scene support five different bands in 1990 just because they were from the Midlands. And I do love that sort of ownership of this was a local thing. Um, Zoe, where is this in your, your full canon for um, you? What's the second track on this one? It's got, yeah, it's got some amazing riffage. Is it the second called... track, Das Vulture das and Ein Nutterlein. Das Vulture, oh, 
I love that. I love that. Oh my God. Well done, Nick. I'm well impressed. Oh, Nick is regular listeners will know that Nick is our go to German pronoun- pron- uh, pronunciation expert. So I come, I come is- from the Marky e. Smith School of Speaking must- German, which is I don't, but I love having a go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that um, was- German listeners, um, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love that one. There's a couple of other tracks I like as well. But I, that harsher sound doesn't really do it for me. And I think we're in that 90s period now where I'm a bit like, hmm, I can take it or leave it. But but there's still good stuff amongst it. So you, I think I've got to work a bit harder during this period. For me, I think I think musically it's good, but his vocals are rough on this album. Yeah, well, this yeah, is one I think, that's... I can't remember who pointed it out. Maybe it was uh, Bricks that he kind of rocked up late and didn't really seem to have many lyrics for the thing. So it was mostly the band kind of created all these tracks and Marky Smith came in at the end to do his lyrics and it, it, the story say that it was pretty rushed. Yeah, I think one or two of the uh, tracks on here, they've got guide vocals just because he just was down the pub. Yeah, well, you've got... Um, <laughs> we've got the one that's uh, sung by Carl Burns on here, haven't you? The uh, Stay yeah, Away Old White Train, which is the Johnny Paycheck song. Oh, yeah, song. that one. That's yeah. awful. Yeah. It is. It's quite it bad. Is. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I will say that as as somebody who has who has come into this 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 wonderful frightening weird um fall thing um seeing three people who love the fall going yeah that's shit it's quite refreshing <laughs> i didn't expect that <laughs> oh there's lots more of that to come here lots more. Yeah. <laughs> there's lots to love as well Oh yeah, but it gets more uneven from here on out, I think. Um, so, so this was '96. We've mentioned he was sort of probably abusing alcohol and drugs a little bit more than he had in the past, um, which sort of pushes into maybe the next album, which was '97, Levitate, which is the last year for a while that we have one a year. Um, is this a spiral into darkness, Joe? Um, I think it's getting there, definitely. Um, the thing is, the vocals are going on Levitate, but I still love it. I think it's a great album. It's one of my favourite albums of the 90s, definitely. But, I mean, Zoe, as I said in one of my intros, you were saying that he sounds like Uncle Peter of Vic and Bob on that record, and he does at times. Did I say that? I can't even remember <laughs> saying that. <laughs> but the thing is, we've got Julian Nagel on this record, and it's a different sound... And it's, yeah, I think the drinking got to a head about 1998 and then he came back with the Marshall Suite. Obviously, there was the uh, infamous gig at New York. Uh, the band completely imploded. And when was that? Well, yeah, that's a that's little bit. Um, well, okay, well, I think on Levitate, it's the first record where, where Marky Smith sounds totally drunk throughout. He just sounds a, he sounds a mess. He so he's, like, he's gone full McGowan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, one way you could put it. As an album, before we get to the infamous gig and before we get to the Julian Nagel uh, situation, um, as an album, um, I, I, I listened to it. I can't remember it. Sorry. Uh, Fall <laughs> fans. I, this was album 17, 16. I don't know. Uh, by this point, I was just like, yeah. I was like, yeah. This is a B-side. It's probably got the worst Fall covers on it. Would you agree? Like I'm a mummy and Jungle Rock. Jungle Rock is awful. Yeah, that, that's just Both I think kind that's of, kind of, kind of predictable, but also not really, you know, not doing yeah. anything that made them seem worthwhile. And generally, you know, you can imagine Fall, the Fall could have done good stuff with both those songs, but they didn't. I have to disagree with I'm a mummy. I like I'm a mummy. It's a lot of fun. Really? Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, I really like that. It's and a then, silly tune. I mean, it is. Yeah, but it's it's it's. I like that. Yeah. I'm, I scare people. I'm fine with silly. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I couldn't stand at your door. That's a cover on there as well. That that's how is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the beat. Um, sorry, the um, the birds did it originally, didn't they? I think. All right. Uh, and the words come from a poet. Uh, I think it's a Japanese poet because it's about Hiroshima. Okay. Wow. And that's why the prelude beforehand is called. Marquee calls it Jap Kid. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit on the nose, don't you think? It is a bit, yeah. Um, this might be a good time. I mean, why is it that, and I think it's a musical thing, um, maybe it's because um, when you get into music, particularly if you get into music that's not in the mainstream, um, the voice, the music is something that actually gets into your bedroom. It gets into your ears. It's, something, it's a private moment. So we seem to forgive musicians for their shitty behavior unless it goes full off full on shitty more than we would forgive say i don't know film directors or whatnot i mean there's a reckoning in the cinema in the movie industry at the moment people going back and going oh so and so bullied me so and so was horrible so and so was this and rightly people are being pulled up as we recall this it's the joss whedon uh storm that's yeah. happening over over in hollywood whereas with music Unless they go full on, I don't know, for some people, full on Morrissey or, or whatever they have to do. It's a sort of, well, I had this personal moment with this person in my bedroom, so to speak. You know, this person, it's not like I watch this on the TV or watch this at the cinema. I listen to this person singing over and over again. This person maybe, this music maybe helped define me as a child. Are we more willing to forgive musicians for being a bit of a twat, bit of a cunt, bit of yeah, a dick? Definitely. Should we? That's a good question. I um, I mean, the problem. That's is, why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, because for example, I love Captain Beefheart as well, but everything indicates that the recording of uh, Trapmaster Replica, he was a complete bully to the band, and um, I think there are lots of incidents of that in music where is music that you know you would say is great. Um, I think you do need to call the musicians out for that, but you can still enjoy the records. It's a tricky one. If you follow the fall from the beginning, you've got three periods, really. And I think the first period, Mark's an excellent writer, a really, really good... If you think about certain records like Grotesque and Hex, the lyrics on there are quite stunning. And then obviously in the 90s, he sort of drunk that out of himself, became a bit of a pisshead. Um, the records are still good. You can still appreciate them. It's still the fall. It's still brilliant. But you notice there's a bit of a decline, and it's going to happen as with all artists that do more than ten years. You know, they'll they'll put out a couple of tough records. But then I think by the time Levitate comes out, he sort of wins you round again because just because he he just he's always there. He drums them out. He he, he puts out the record, and especially if you go and see him live. You know, you just appreciate the fact that he's still doing this, that he's still Mark, that every record is a fall album. Every year, sorry, it's a fall album that comes out. But in terms of my contemporaneous fandom, I think I was drifting away a little bit from the fall at this point. Um, I was still I was still glad that they were out there doing their thing. Um, it was kind of the sort of period in my life where I was living outside of the UK, but pre-internet, so I wasn't kind of as aware what was going on. But I had friends who would send me new fall albums on cassette. So I could, I was still listening to them, but it was just kind of like, yeah, I'm glad that's there. And it wasn't until later, which we'll talk about in another episode, where there were four albums that were reeled me back in and made me think, oh, actually, he's still got it at some level. At this point, yeah. I didn't really feel that. I was kind of, you know, happy it was there, it, but I didn't love it these albums when, at the time. When you get into them, I think most fall fans, if you become a fall fan, when you first get it, you end up buying so many of the records 
and you're obsessive. You have to get everything. You see them live a couple of times, and then you almost kind of get fed up with them. And then a couple of years later, you think, oh, bloody hell. You listen to those records you miss, you think, actually, that's great. That's really good. That's brilliant. Why did I not hear that? And I think I did that around the time yeah. of Imperial Wax Solvent. Uh, listen to it now. It's one of my favourites. I'd put it top 10. Okay, so at this moment, it's 97, moving into 98. Um, things are spiraling out of control, and they sort of culminate in the infamous gig in Joe. Where was it? Yeah, it was Brownies in New York, yeah. I think April 1998. It was the one where I think three people punched Marquee on stage. You had Tommy Crooks. And he's the person on the front cover of the album of Levitate. You had Carl Burns. Um, there was some unpleasantness. Hamley's still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah just. Like Steve Hamley was still in the band. Yep. He might have hit him as well, actually. He was an arsehole. There's actually, sorry, there is actually footage on YouTube of the fight. Um, I've heard the recording. It just looks like a really, yeah, really shambolic gig. And the fight broke out on stage. It's It sounds awful. And I think, you know, Marky Smith was been in a really bad place at that time, and the band just decided they'd had enough. It and just sadly that... all the way through. If you listen to that gig, if you listen to any recordings, all he did was just talk all the way through it, and was yeah. just basically an arsehole. Yeah, but you think like Burns and Hanley quitting—that's big, you know. Burns Burns was on live at the Witch Trial. Hanley was on Dragnet and every record since, um, you know. And this is also the point where you see you see i've i've kind of labored this point quite a bit in my introductions and the discussion so far that i think often the whole thing about the fallen lineups is overegged because for the best part of the career there was a very solid lineup at the center of the band yeah true however that. from here, from here on in or at least for a period because they do stabilize yeah. again towards the end there is yeah, a period true, of turmoil and this is where yeah. the kind of myth of the fall becomes kind of the truth of the fall this and is where the my records are yeah, and the, and 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 the person who encouraged that the most was Marky e. Smith because he kind of needed the fall to be able to continue, and he's the. It was around this time I think that he came out with the famous quote that kind of annoys me a bit about it. if it's me, me, your granny, and a monkey on bongos, it's the fall. Like I I, I bridle a bit of that, but Marky e. Smith started and encouraged that line of thinking about the fall. He also encouraged and. Uh, not necessarily uh, proactively, probably proactively, uh, an atmosphere that culminated in the band basically having, you know, fighting on a, on a stage. Yeah. Um, he has to be held responsible oh, totally. for the atmosphere that came out of this, right? Well, I mean, yeah. if you are a... No, just saying it could have been the end of the fall, really, completely. It really could. I mean, after this point, there was only two members of the fall, and that was him and Julian Nagel. Yeah. Okay, and... <sighs> And obviously, I mean, we can't brush this under the carpet either. I mean, at the time he was a, a, arrested in 98 for the assault of keyboardist and girlfriend, uh, Julia Nagel, um, th- th- throttling and kicking. I mean, this is a man who's lashing out at everybody, right? And it's coming to a head. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, what's amazing is she stayed on for uh, a further two records as well after this. Well, it's the thing where we talk about the cult, cultishness and abusive relationships. The fact that she's the one who stayed in the band when the rest of the band quit. Yeah, is, that's right. She was the only one know. as well. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, you, I, I have no idea what goes through people's heads, and maybe people loved being in the fall so much, uh, or maybe they just they were under the thrall of Marky Smith, or they saw something in him that other people didn't necessarily see. Um, um, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, he, he there there was the there was the, the fall uh, spiraling down. Everything came to a head. Um, surely this is the end of the fall. No band can come back from this. Um, 
And then they got they got an advert. They got stuff on an advert. I mean, they 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 break, <laughs> right? So well, that was later, I think. It oh, was come later, on, yeah. narrative, yeah. narrative. Well, the yeah. track the track that was used on an advert was on the next album, and and the, yeah. and the thing is, I mean, I think it's great. It's a good single. It's, it's back to good fall singles, like from the early well, nineties. This is it, right? Is on the one hand, you've got this stuff that's happening with the fall as a band, and mm. everything would indicate that it's it's pretty much over. And I think yeah, probably yeah. most people probably thought, yeah, this is probably the end of the line. And then the Marshall Suite, it's actually well, quite a good record. Yeah, the beauty of the Marshall Suite is you, you think it's going to be shit, and it's not. It's anything but. It's a great record. Oh, I just, I'm, I'm just not sold at this point. I, I, I feel like the magic is starting to wear off a bit. And it's that fine line between genius and sort of like alcoholic ranting. And so for me, personally... I don't need a fine line. It's, it's that. <laughs> for, so, for me, I don't know. My least favourites are probably Cerebral Caustic, uh, like User Syndrome. But I think I want to come out swinging for those late 90s fall records, really, because not a lot of people love them. They're actually pretty good. They're not bad, particularly the Marshall Suite. I think that's the peak of the three that I've got. I, I like the Marshall Suite. Um... I mean, after well, okay, after light user levitates, whatever. Um, I was seriously going, oh my god, I've got more to listen to. Uh, <laughs> I think the fall's over now. Sweet Two Jesus, decades. someone, someone, get rid of me, help me out of this now. And then Master Sweet, I was like, huh, okay. If I could have gone straight from before, so if I could have eradicated cerebral caustic light user and levitate, and just that was the nineties fall, I'd have been like brilliant i really like this um zoe doesn't no why don't sorry. you because of the magic's gone or musically or is it just fall fatigue i think what it is it's just not my thing and it, it's sort of a similar thing on the next record that it isn't something i would normally listen to but what i will say about the next record even though it's something i wouldn't normally listen to i like it whereas this one it isn't something i'd normally listen to and i don't like it that's as simple as i can put it it's just it's just a bit heavy and i'm i'm not really into that kind of heavy rock thing at all as much as i can see the criticism for levity Mark sounding pissed and out of it and everything. I think on the next two, I think on the Marshall Suite and the Unutterable, I think he's got something to prove. He's lost his band. Um, he wants to come out swinging. He sounds more with it and focused. Um, touch sensitive, strong single. I think the first four on the Marshall Suite, you've got Old in Money. That's really good. I think that's my favourite cover by the fall. Shake Off's really good. Um, there's a lot of strong ones on there. Young Nev's anecdotes, that's really good. Um, and the Unutterable, that, where that's really interesting is there's no covers, it's just the fall. So you can tell that he's wanting to come back, mm -hmm. and I think he does. I think he kind of succeeds. And then that gets you onto the point where you've got something like Country at the Click, sorry, Country on the Click, Fall Hedge, Hedge Roll. Imperial Wax, they're really solid albums. I'm going to jump in at this point because you've just you've just flown through into into midway through the next episode. <laughs> um, but I am going to go. You've moved you moved on to the unutterable, and uh -huh, this is my favorite Fall album. Wow, wow. Really? really? I never would have predicted it, but I love this it. This is the only one that, while I've been listening to everything, that the second it finished, I put it on again immediately. Amazing, um, amazing. I, I think, okay, we started whoa, the last episode with me talking about how the early 90s was baggy and wazzy as fuck. You know, this is, this is an industrial album. It's a, it's a 
they, they were industrial guitars. It's a sound I liked mid nineties and sort of thought I'd moved away from. And I was listening to this and I was like, this is great. Um, as an aside, today is Sunday. Yes, two days ago, uh, Scott Donald, who was on the previous episode, came around my house and I was listening to this for the third time and he walked in and he went, oh, what's this? This is good. I was like, it is, isn't it? Um, this album, loved it, start to finish, brilliant. This was totally... Wait, 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 start to finish. Even pumpkin soup and mashed potato. That's not bad. That's not bad. Oh, come on. <laughs> That's probably my least favourite full song. It's it worse, it's worse. At least they had a go at doing something different. That's the thing you yeah, always I'm, I'm all for that. You always write off Marky e. Smith uh, thinking he's, he's, you know, one thing or the other, but like he'll always surprise you in doing something like that. So he'll do like a jazz lounge song. Yeah, I don't want to hear him do jazz lounge songs. I really don't. I don't, I, I don't mind jazz lounge songs, but not by Marky e. Smith. No thanks. <laughs> Um, who was in the who 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 was in the band at the moment? Because who who was playing those sweet guitar riffs that I fell in love with? Uh, Neville Wilding was the guitarist mm. at that point. Young Nev, that's right. I think he had sort of like a relationship with Mark E. Smith, where he was a lot younger. So Mark took him under his wing, sort of as like a father figure. That's not a that's not a father figure. You were no. Oh, it's okay. I'm being <laughs> I'm being helped out by Mark E. Smith. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. We did that with like his last band, didn't he? Really, they were all a lot younger, and the Americans as well. Well, I think he always had that kind of. Um, it's kind of weird to call it paternalistic, but I think he, it was partly the kind of old before his time thing as well. But you know, like letting, like encouraging Paul Hanley to leave the band to do his A levels and things like that. I think, I think he liked the idea of himself as a paternalistic figure. I don't think he was a paternalistic figure, but yeah, I think he becomes journalistic figure after um, year 2000 anyway. Mm. I think he likes being <laughs> the 50-year-old man. I think he always wanted to be that age. No, no, that's it. But the thing is, like, when I got into the fall in 92, I thought of him as ancient. And in reality, he was probably in his early 30s. And I guess it's just one of those things because I was like, I was about 18 and early 30s is ancient when you're 18. But, you know, he always had a kind of old man's persona and probably had it when he when he was 18, you know? And it but didn't he like he also used to like hanging out with like old boozers didn't he so that those were his people yeah, yeah. so it's not surprising that he kind of manifested as one himself i remember when i went to see the fall once and uh, mark was there obviously with his mother and if you ever see his mother it, it had to be mark's mum just because she looked she she had the same face but she sort of had the hair of phyllis pierce from coronation street you know and, and he went and sat down and there was like a group of pensioners. He looked in his element. That was in Bolton, I think, 2007. He just seemed happy. Yeah. Um, so, so, okay, at the end of this period, we're in 2000. Um, they've gone, he's gone, he's fallen down hard, um, spiralled a bit. Uh, has he packed in this the 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 drink and the drugs at this point or is it less no is no it... not at all no i think he's curbed i don't it. think he ever packed it in <laughs> no would you say he's being considered because there, there's a point probably we'll, we'll, we'll address it in the next episode uh that he does get <laughs> a national treasure status somehow you know he gets he gets on that today or back to the day or whatever it was to read the football results and you know, he becomes this sort of alternative national treasure was he being accepted yet or was this a sort of period in the wilderness? Um, he did get the Enemy Godlike Genius Award around this time. Yeah, what year was that? that? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that was about 1998, 1999. Right. So it was the time when he was really on the rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet so that's I all he needed. This is the turning point. <laughs> um, 
like I say, like in the mid to late nineties, that's the kind of nadir, really. And then he's, he's, this is the point where he's turning around to national treasure status. Yeah, but I mean, for a long time, he'd been the, the the alternative music press loved him because he was always good value for money for quotes and things. Um, that had been that was probably the case already when I first got into them in about in the early nineties. He's definitely quotable, but then is there the point? Had he got to the point where he'd become a cartoon caricature of himself and playing up to that? Well, that's something I guess we'll talk about more later on because I always felt that there was the, always the danger that he would become a cartoon character of himself, but somehow he always seemed to elude that a bit as well and do his own thing. Um, I think later on it's harder to make that case. Okay, well. That's probably a good time to wrap it up. Um, we have had some excellent uh, introductions to albums in the last episode uh, from Zoe and in this episode from Joe. Um, we have gone through the 90s. The Fall are still a thing. Just. Wait, Marky e. Smith is still The Fall. And who knows what we're going to have next. Um, I've surprised everybody by telling them that The, the Unnatural Ball was my favorite Fall album. And... I'm sticking by it. But then I only one. started listening to... I hadn't listened to a single Fall album until the other week. So, you know, this mm. is where I'm going. Um, and for those of you who are coming back for the next episode, which is all of you, um, just to give you a heads up, we're recording that in four hours and I've got three Fall albums to listen to. So that'll be fun. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I just ask um, a question? Um, just because I'm curious. Nick, what is your favourite Fall album? Okay. Well, we talked about it a bit in, uh, I think, episode two, probably. Of this, but um, I usually say this nation's saving grace. But I think I just say it because I need—I feel the need to have a favorite fall album to be able to answer that question. But the truth is, it's generally the one I'm currently listening to. Yeah. And, and so, how just... about you? So, what's your favorite fall, fall and period and fall? I, what's your favorite course, fall? I love the early fall stuff. I really like it. But if I have to pick an album, I I go extricate because it was my first one. So you know, it, it's always your first, isn't it? That's fall. good. Well, we're starting, we, we started last pod on your on your favourite. We're ending this pod on my favourite. Joe, what's your... Grotesque after the gram. Yeah. The, the so I do love album. that early sound. I, I, that's, that's stuff that excites me most in a way when I'm listening to it. The really, really Lyri- early fall. Lyrically, it's Mark's best. It's astonishingly good. That's where like every song could be like a little mini paperback. You've got New Face in Hell and Impression of Jay Temperance. It's like little sci-fi stories. He's on fire. And you've lost that by the late 90s, haven't you? That's definitely something I'll talk about more in future episodes. But the thing I like most about Marky Smith does fade quite a lot. Okay, well... Is Marky is Marky Smith going to come back? What, no, I can't be bothered to do a voice like that. Um, it's been an amazing <laughs> episode. Yeah. It's been an amazing episode. Zoe, thank you very much for your time, and we will see you on the pod very soon. Thank you for having me. Joe, been great to have you on. Hopefully we'll get you back. Thanks for having me. Nick. Cheers. See you later. Bye. Bye. I love a listener who sticks around for the footnotes. Well, here they are. Thank you to our guests on today's show, Zoe Von Hess and Joe Mitchell. We've enjoyed your work guiding us through the tempestuous sounds of the fall in the 1990s, and we're sorry to have to say goodbye in order to make way for our guests for parts 5 and 6. Ewan will still be here, though, and I just want to thank him for persisting with the show, even though he's probably forgetting what it's like to listen to other bands by now but he'll soon understand that the fall of the band next to which all others are judged, right? Thanks also to Jonathan Fisher for his bloody Space Invader machines, 
Links to his work and the creators of other incidental music used in the show can be found in our notes. Four down and two to go. See you on the next one. I'm Nick Hilditch, and one day you'll find out that you lost a good man. <laughs>